Okay, welcome everybody to the Growing Pains podcast. I'm Matt George. And I'm David Campbell. David, we we didn't think we'd do this in the pilot, but it looks like we don't have a choice. We're going to have to uh we're going to have to address the elephant in the room, and that is the spread of the COVID-19 virus. Are you self-isolating? I am self-isolating. I'm in my office here at home, my home office, and I, I am doing everything I can to not interact with other folks. I do have to go for groceries, but other than that, uh, yeah, we're following all the protocols. We'd like to see this end as soon as possible. Yeah, I had a I had a good conversation with Harry Forstall this morning uh, on the CBC, and we were making some quick jokes back and forth about how some of the trends in the self-isolation is seemingly having forgotten where your razor is. I know I'm guilty of that. I'm growing a more beard than I should, but I'm trying to stay productive as possible. Yep. So I'm a home-based worker. I've been working at home now for a number of years. So uh, I understand that issue. You don't feel as much pressure to shave and things <laughs> like that, except for when you have meetings with actual clients and then, uh, yeah, exactly. and then you do. But now that we're in a virtual world, I have meetings every day now but they're all online so it, it sort of changes the dynamic it's a new a new world out there certainly and and uh, i don't know that anybody knows when this is going to end but i'm sure we'll we'll try to talk that through uh, uh, uh today well one of the things one of the things that we talked about was it's, it's hard to know especially as someone who may be having had work come on pause or 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 a layoff it's certainly an interruption in the schedule. And I think everybody's thinking, how do you, how do you try to remain useful? I know I've felt this kind of the sense of uselessness in some ways. I mean, I'm interacting with my clients and I'm trying to support them as best you can, but at some point you kind of feel the walls close in and you start to feel this sense of uselessness. But I mean, maybe somehow today we can try to be useful to the folks that we're speaking to and try to summarize or digest some of the stuff that's coming through, whether that's municipal policy or provincial policy or this new federal stimulus package that Trudeau laid out. I think he said $27 billion to go towards helping small business. Yeah, the whole package was, I think, $87 billion, but the, mm-hmm. it is broken down between business and, and direct to resident support. So it's a big number. Uh, if you if you look at it adjusted for population size, it's it's bigger than what has been proposed in the U.S. So, uh, but again, when you're talking about an economy the size of Canada's, uh, and when you're talking about basically seizing up seventy percent of the economy for an unknown period of time, uh, it's hard to imagine any um, small amounts of government money, $900 here, $900 there, you know, if you aggregate it over the whole population, big numbers, mm-hmm. but whether or not it can keep the economy on life support uh, for an extended period of time is, is I think very problematic. Yeah. I think that the timeline is the whole question. I mean, if you look into the stimulus package that was released, one of them, as I understand is for folks who don't qualify for EI, there is kind of an EI light that's going to be given out in 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 two week increments over 14 weeks. So if you juxtapose that with businesses saying there's a work from home order for two and the federal government's releasing a stimulus package for 14, I think the consensus is, is this thing may get worse before it gets better. We may be in for a multi month scenario where we'll have to look at how do you pick up the pieces. Yes, I talked this morning to Louis-Philippe Gauthier, who's the uh, Canadian Federation for Independent Business guy mm-hmm. here in New Brunswick, and he's pretty uh, pessimistic about things, right? And particularly for his members, many of them are on life support already and, and uh, you know, one, two, three months of, of very little or no business could, could put many of them out, out and call the herd, as it were. Mm-hmm. So it's a it's a very big concern, and uh, whether it lingers beyond a certain period of time, I know the most of the government messaging is is trying to suggest it's going to be fairly short term. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, Donald Trump tweeted, "15 days. Let's let's sort of do a surge of social distancing for 15 days, and then see where we're at." But uh, you know, I think it's certainly going to be much longer than that. I don't know how long, but uh, I, I would suspect it's going to be more than that. And the other thing that I don't know as an economist is 
at what point does government decide to relax these conditions, right? So we're doing this now in order to uh, prevent a big spike in cases. So at what point do you say, well, yes, we still have a few dozen cases or a few hundred cases, but you know, they're not going away or, or, or do you wait till you try to, you know, wipe it out completely? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, you know, then you, do you start opening borders and things and risk and risk, uh, folks coming in with it. So it's a tricky, tricky dynamic, but ultimately I think you can't ignore the economic, uh, issues here. If you're going to bring the entire economy to, to heal and, 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 and lead to something that could look like a, the great depression, maybe, uh, you know, you have to ask yourself at what point do you balance those things off? And it's very tricky. One thing I can tell you for sure is I certainly was kind of annoyed when I saw all those uh, teeny boppers in Fort Lauderdale. I know. Uh, violating every possible protocol around social uh, social distancing, right? I mean, that makes no sense. Yeah, what, what was even worse for me as a millennial is is... I don't know why we can't seem to see five feet in front of our faces. I mean, when, when you see the interviews of these kids in Clearwater, Florida, on the beach, having a great time um, in the midst of what is 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 a crisis, there was no reference to the elderly in the region. There was no reference to the size of the population of Florida and how old it is. It was all about our partying has been interrupted. Our spring break has been interrupted. I think it's blown out of proportion. And I mean, let's be honest, these kids aren't scientists. There's no, there's, we're not taking any COVID-19 response advice from, from, from Mr. Frat Party in Clearwater, Florida. And so this is just not a sense of, I think there's a sense of solidarity in our region. We're, we're recording from Atlantic Canada and I'm proud to see it, but it doesn't seem like there's a sense of the severity of what this thing is going to be like and what the possible effects for people who are really suffering here are. Yeah, I mean, I think young people tend to feel invincible. And, and um, so if, but this isn't just about them, right? So they feel, yes, I can get the COVID. Now I'm going to risk getting this, this virus because I can survive it. But the problem is they're going to be taking it back to their communities and their parents and their grandparents and everybody else. So I think it is, I think, millennials or younger people in general need to be thinking about this is not just about me this is about the impact on on community and when you read about these clusters where they start with just one person and that one person led to the infection of hundreds and the death of dozens i suspect that person doesn't feel very good now in those cases if you think of south korea or italy or other otherwise the folks didn't really know that they were uh, that they had it or that they were at risk of having it. But the kids now in North America, across North America, have to realize that they could be carrying this or they could come into contact with it uh, if they're not uh, doing the social distancing thing. And so, right? So then they theoretically could be carrying this all over and creating new clusters of activity across the U.S. and Canada. And I think that's I don't know why people kind of miss that, right? It's not just about them getting sick and spending a week puking and, and dealing with a temperature. It's about spreading it to many, many other hundreds of people that could uh, could cause a lot more chaos. No, that's exactly right. And we'll, we'll get back to the small business side in a minute. But when I was thinking about where I can be useful and where I can find some sense of usefulness, um, to give you some inside baseball, my mom is on one of the COVID response teams in New Brunswick. And the best thing that I can do as a young, healthy person is not become a vector for this thing. So the best thing that I can do is not get it and pass it to Grandpa Joe, because Grandpa Joe is going to have a much harder time. I might have a shitty 48 hours, um, but in all likelihood, given the evidence that we have coming out of Europe and from Asia, I'm going to be fine. Um, But my actions here are not arbitrary. My actions here have meaning. And so... Is it, is it frustrating to have to stay home for a little while? Yeah. I mean, I mean, the walls start to close in on you, but at the same time, this is what I can do to be useful. And that's not to become a vector for this thing. Um, we're going to report and record on Atlantic Canada throughout the process of this podcast. And in theory, given that North America is the last to face this thing because of the East to West transmission and because we're fairly rural already, if we do this well, 
you could imagine world-class outcomes. The regional hospital in St. John, New Brunswick has a ward designated for the COVID-19 response ready and, and, uh, and stacked and ready to go with nobody in it. And that's great news. So in theory, if we do this right and we don't behave like Clearwater, Florida, uh, we could have world-class outcomes, but that, that, that puts the burden on our shoulders to say, look, we have to, we have to isolate for a little while and we have to get on the other side of this thing. Yeah, I mean, quite frankly, if everybody self-isolated, every single person in the world, uh, you know, the ones that had it would work through, right? Would would go through their process, and then they'd come out the other end. And for the most part, you'd you'd be clean, right? The whole world be clean. But you can't do that, right? You have there's going to be some of that interaction, but we should certainly should try to minimize that as much as possible. Do everything we can to to not let this spread because again i think the economic impacts i think people are underestimating you know health is very important and people will normally put health in front of economics i mean that's a very personal thing but on the other hand you know if you think about maslow's hierarchy of needs Mm -hmm. at the very core of that is is you know the ability to put food on the table and a roof over your head so so it's all tied up together but hopefully we can get through this it's we're in unprecedented times but i think the response in New Brunswick and for the most part across the Canada has been incredibly uh, quick and incredibly strong. And I think, uh, yeah, like you said, a place like New Brunswick could, you know, could really end up with receiving very little uh, pain from this whole uh, effort. If you had to guess how many months or or weeks, we could even say, would a small business have in operating cash? Because I'm going to guess it's pretty low. So that was the question I asked Louis Philippe this morning uh, from the CFIB, and and I was surprised. He's saying a lot of them don't have enough to go a month or two. Right? I, I'm actually not surprised by that. So I, yeah, I mean, I, I don't, I don't. I mean, anyway, I, I I own my own small business, and I think I could go six months without any revenue. But again, right. I don't have a payroll. My, I'm I'm the payroll. Right. Uh, but I, I, yeah, so I was surprised by that. So I guess the question is, what's the, what's the, what's the remediation? So he is suggesting that for firms that aren't, um, customer facing, that aren't dealing directly with the customers like restaurants, he's suggesting that the government should, should provide direct subsidies, wage subsidies direct to the businesses so that they can keep their employees employed, even as the demand for their services or the work is, is going down. Uh, but at least they keep them uh, working or or paid now, right? You've got you've also got social distancing things uh, considerations even within business. Mm-hmm. But at least you have cash coming in. At least you're still paying your staff, uh, and hopefully you're keeping things, I guess, on life support and not going out of business. And the other thing that he was concerned about is around the banks, right? So he, the, the same way the federal government is suggesting that businesses now don't have to pay their taxes until June and so on, uh, you know, maybe banks should be more flexible about uh, not only the terms of repayment, but also the, the the process under which that happens, right? So he he relayed stories of businesses already being asked by the banks to show all their cash flow information, you know, to provide all this data to suggest that they need you know, a 30 day extension on their line of credit um, when it should be obvious look, you know, to the bank, look around you, the world is collapsing here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, the best thing you can do is just is just be very sensitive to your your clients. And, and, and yes, some will go bankrupt. And so this will kill probably many small businesses across the country, um, ones that were kind of on the bubble that weren't necessarily very strong to begin with. Uh, but in general, I think the banking system and the government system needs to be very, you know, sensitive to this reality. Because if you unduly affect the economy in a negative way, um, you know, but again, we're in uncharted territories, right? Mm-hmm. So we've always talked about stimulus and, and how what's the role of government when you hit these recessions. But normally we're talking about relatively limited recessions where we can isolate what the problem was and try to target solutions to that problem, whether it's the finance sector or the housing sector or whatever sector manufacturing. But when people just stop spending money, right? When, when, we, when we literally tell uh, 36 million people, go stay in your home and don't leave, 
you know, we've we've actually created a, a massive economic catastrophe for good reason to address mm-hmm. this this pandemic. Uh, but I think the response is that we're in uncharted uh, uncharted territories, and of course the the finance minister and the prime minister both have said that the the, the uh, eighty plus billion dollar package was only phase one. So they're even looking at what could be the next round uh, of of support that you know that could keep the economy at least sort of plugging along through this uh, through this period. But there's really nothing you can do to replace all of that uh, consumer spending that's disappeared, right? I mean, you have Mm -hmm. to make sure that people have enough food and enough medicine, uh, but they are not gonna go out to eat, they're not gonna entertain themselves, they're not gonna buy uh, clothing and and electronics, and they're not gonna, you know, they're not gonna spend the big chunk of their household income. Uh, And that that, that has the ripple effect of everybody that was working in those industries loses their job or many people lose their job and then you have this sort of downward spiral in terms of economic output so yeah it's a it's a it's a very interesting for an economist it's a very interesting time but we are in uncharted territory so it's not mm-hmm. anybody that tells you there's an easy solution if we knew the end point you know if we said look this will end by june 1st uh then you have much better a much better understanding of what the tools you might need uh, to get you there, but we don't know that if it's if it if it literally and Louis Philippe this morning was talking about it, you know, potentially going into the fall, possibly even the whole year. Um, you know, I don't think anybody has really understood what taking seventy percent of your economy offline for a whole year looks like. Yeah, that's the thing. The thing that my wake up call was. When you go for a walk or where you go for a drive around your community right now, just the sheer lack of economic activity happening, people trading their dollars for products or services, there's just so little of it happening. And how do you get on the other side of that? That's, that's was my biggest wake up call for sure. I was looking at a, a regional uh, restaurant group, pretty successful group, uh, just did a 400 person layoff. So if you're talking about a stimulus package for something like the service industry, would they need to agree to some kind of contingencies? Like 90% of this is for salaries and 10% you can put towards overhead or something like that. Like you can't just sit on this money. If there's a stimulus package, there'll be some kind of process you have to go through as the business owner or the holding group. Yeah, so that's that's exactly right. So, and, and the other thing about these broad-based programs is they're very hard. You know, they're very hard to be efficient because maybe half the people don't need the money, and half the people need more money than you're actually providing. So you end up giving out. You know, uh, so trying to find some middle ground in terms of whether it's EI directly to the end uh, end resident or or support to business, but. But ultimately, I think you know this is the this is the time not to be too too cute and too too specific. Uh, and I think it is important to make sure there's money flooding into the economy now. Uh, and and again, not understanding the length of this because if 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 the government is picking up a third of the country or a four or, you know half the country's wage bill, you know for the next six months, it it it, it could have tremendous impacts down the line in terms of mm-hmm. them trying to. <clears throat> address deficits and so on. So I, I look, my message is don't, you know, as, as many people are saying, we can't panic. I think this is the other problem in the modern world is because this is, un, this is unprecedented. Our, our natural inclination is to kind of panic or worry about what's going to happen six months out. The prime minister was very clear uh, that he doesn't want any family in Canada uh, to go hungry uh, or to not be able to make their payments on their, their mortgage and things like that. And that's the, the, the support programs are going to be able to address that. So I think we need to take them at their word. And I think we need to just soldier on, right? And, and again, the more we can uh, sit in our homes and, and do this social distancing, the better, because the more likely we're going to get over the finish line. And, and it is possible we could be over the finish line. Mm-hmm you know, in, in a month or two, it, it is possible. It depends on the spread uh, and it depends on the ability to arrest it. In China right now, the, the number of new cases is zero. I think that was the number yesterday. Yeah, that's right. Um, so, you know, if that holds, right, then they're just working through the system 
And then ultimately within a fairly short period of time, they will be mostly, if not entirely, uh, disease free uh, or virus free. So don't panic, you know, um, again, <laughs> you know, if you're a small business owner, that's a tough, a tough thing to swallow, but you know, they've got to try to find a way to sustain themselves through this process. So that means shedding as many costs as, as possible. Again, the federal government is being very generous with employees. So if these small businesses have to lay off their employees, then that's gonna have to be the case, unless, mm -hmm. as I said before, you know, the government decides to flow some of that wage subsidy directly or some of that rate through the business. Uh, but otherwise, you know, they shouldn't be running up big losses every month, you know, if it's going to put them out of business. So I think that, you know, they need to be prudent. But at the end of the day, the idea would be for at least, you know, most of these businesses that come out the other end, a little bruised, a little battered, you know, with the credit line a little broken, mm -hmm. but, but ready to get back into business and to serve the hamburgers and make the sandwiches and, you know, provide the services that they've been providing in local communities. So, um, it's cold comfort, but I think we can't panic at this point. We have to soldier on. And I think that's the message uh, for everybody, whether you're a business or a, a worker. Yeah. And I think it sounds to me like life support is the lesser of two evils when deciding whether to shut up shop or just try to keep your head above water. I mean, I can, I can imagine a small business that's had to either break a lease agreement or lay off their staff reopening being extremely difficult, especially if you've had a serious interruption, like a location problem. So we need to keep these businesses alive somehow. And, and it may be, it may look a lot like, like life support over the next six months or so, but hopefully we get there. So we have to leave, we have to leave the spread of COVID-19 for now. I mean, I'm guessing as we do this podcast weekly, we'll address it at the top of the show. Um, just update folks on where we are. Try to try to produce some clear language, a little bit more signal and less noise. But let's introduce folks to you. So I want listeners to know what your career arc has been like. Tell us what you've been up to for the last decade or so. So I'm absolutely thrilled that we're, we're going to be doing this podcast, the Growing Pains podcast. I think that you know, there are thousands and thousands of podcasts around the world. I listen to my my share, and I know you do, and I know many do, and you produce a lot. Uh, but there are very few that are targeting folks in local communities in Atlantic Canada that are concerned about how do we sustain strong local economies mm -hmm. uh, uh, for the long term. So what does that mean in terms of people attraction and, and economic development and so on? So that has been my... Uh, career focus, literally going back to when I started. My first job in the early 1990s was writing the proposals that Frank McKenna and his team would take to pitch national and international firms on setting up in New Brunswick. So I actually wrote the business case. Uh, this was long before the internet, so I had to do a lot of primary research at UNB and so on. So I started there, and then my career took me to St. John. I worked for the telephone company for a while, and then I moved to Moncton almost 20 years ago now, and I've been here ever since in a variety of roles. Uh, I have a private consulting firm, Jupia Consultants, Inc. That's my that's how I make my money. Uh, and a few years ago, I was asked to, be, uh, to go into government and be the chief economist for the province of New Brunswick. And in that role, I had the opportunity to write the economic growth plan, uh, and I had the opportunity to write the plan that led to the Atlantic Immigration Pilot Project. So, you know, there's an old Chinese proverb that, uh, you know, success has a thousand fathers and failure is an orphan. <laughs> so I realized there were a lot of people involved in the development of the Atlantic Immigration Pilot Project. But we wrote that initial case. And basically the case was you need to be able to bring in workers based on the needs of industry, not based on a point system, which is what the way Canada has been doing it historically and continues to do it in, in large respect. But ultimately, if you need truck drivers, don't bring in PhDs, uh, bring in truck drivers. So right. that actually worked out well. So that's what I've been doing for many years. In the last, let's say, six or seven, a lot of the focus has been on people attraction because we started to see labor markets seizing up uh, after the recession. Uh, we came out of the 2008 recession in Atlantic Canada, and 
every economy, all four provinces, the economies didn't grow. Now, PEI started to grow after about 2010, mm -hmm. started to grow and started to grow fairly strongly. And if you look at why, it's because they started to flow in people in large numbers a lot faster than the other three Atlantic provinces. Right. Uh, but for the most part, we started to realize that the labor market was seizing up. Uh, and, and so that's why much of my focus in the last few years has been on how do you make sure you've got enough workers to meet labor market demand at the local level in communities across the region. And so that's that's me in a nutshell, right? I've been I have a blog that's called It's the Economy Stupid. People can find it at DavidWCampbell.com. Please do not go to DavidCampbell.com because that's a very good-looking Australian actor, <laughs> uh, but it is not me. So stick a W between David and Campbell, and you'll get to my blog. I try to update that a couple of times a week. You shouldn't have said uh, that because if they go to the wrong site, they might never come back to the blog. <laughs> well, but then it's false advertising because this guy's really good-looking. You should you should have a look. <laughs> Uh, no, I mean, you know, so so if they think that's me, then then I'm misrepresenting myself. But no, I so I've been doing that since 2004. I've been a Telegraph Journal uh, uh, columnist uh, for almost the same period of time. I just picked that up again uh, a few weeks ago, but I've been doing that uh, for the most part, going all the way back to 2004 as well. So very interesting career uh, for myself. I've really enjoyed being able to work with governments and community leaders across the region on economic strategy and on people attraction. Uh, but we've got a lot of work to do. And so this uh, podcast that we're doing here, uh, Matt, I think will help people uh, at the community level as we look to uh, sustainably grow our communities. And as you say, in the short term, we're going to be preoccupied with this, this COVID-19 and with this pandemic and what's our response. But in the longer run, we have to think about how do you grow places like Truro, Nova Scotia, and Miramichi, New Brunswick, and you know, and Summerside, Prince Edward Island. And I've spent a career thinking about that and working with communities on that. And and hopefully we can we can impart some of that knowledge to the to the listeners of Growing Pains, and hopefully uh, it'll be of value to them, and they'll tune in every time we uh, we publish a new one. I think that's what excites me the most about doing the show with you and calling it growing pains is, is if you looked at the region as a whole, you would be forgiven if you didn't see a 21st century economy. And what I mean by that is I don't mean we don't have um, really smart and savvy IT firms and services. We know we do, but at the same time, you're not looking at a place that looks like a place like say Singapore or Seoul, Korea. We're just a very different place. And we're going to do a segment at the end of the show uh, that's going to be a pretty good introduction as to where we are right now as an economy. But let's step back and blow it up for a minute and talk about um, Atlantic Canada as a region. So we've introduced you and now we want to introduce our subject and, and we will have some case studies and real world studies from New Brunswick. But we won't forget about our brothers and sisters in Nova Scotia, uh, PEI and Newfoundland as well. And I want to do it this way. So it seems to me like there is there's three different types of scenarios we're going to be working with. There's the world and the economy as it stands today. There's the world and the economy we hope we have in the 21st century. And in the middle, there has to be agreements on how we get there. And right now, when you look at our brothers and sisters south of the border in America, and I say this with having family members who are American, they seem to be headed for a renaissance of some kind. I don't know which way it's going to go because they don't even agree, you know, agree on step one. I mean, if you watch Fox News or you watch CNN, you live in a completely different America. But in Atlantic Canada, do, do we have a fundamental grasp culturally on what kind of people we are, what kind of place we are, what kind of economy we're dealing with? So I would say in larger and more... Um let's say advanced uh, economies, there's more people, more expertise, more analysis, more writing, more thinking given to, the, to that very question, right? And in a place like Atlantic Canada, we don't have the kind of resource, re research horsepower, but we don't even have as many people uh, sort of writing thoughtful commentary uh, on culture and arts and other aspects of society. So I, I like to joke that there, 
you know, if you every premier of Ontario gets multiple biographies written. Uh, and when premiers, you know, in New Brunswick, when they retire, there's virtually nothing written on them unless, you know, you're Frank McKenna. Uh, so you sort of fade off into the sunset because we don't have the horsepower, mm-hmm. but we also don't have the markets, right? So a journalist will tell me, oh, I'd, I'd love to write a biography on David Allward, but nobody, there'd be nobody to buy it. So there's no market for it. So I still think that the, one of the challenges we have in this region is we don't really, because we're small, we're fairly disparate, we don't have large urban centers, uh, we haven't really... Uh, thought about those kinds of questions in a, in, a, in, a, in a serious way. We have some think tanks in this region, but they're mostly small and mostly focused. Um, so that, that broader question about who we are and then ultimately trying to, to connect that to who we want to become in the future, uh, I think is more problematic in this region. Our, our government tends to be transactional. It tends to be trying to address the problems today versus looking 10 and 15 years out. Uh, there have been long-term strategies like the self-sufficiency agenda, which was written in 2007. Uh, uh, but again, it was mostly ignored. Um, and, you know, because the, the, the problems of today uh, supersede the strategy and the, and the, and the concerns of, of, of a potential future. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, I, you know, this, again, this podcast in its small little way should help help us think about that and help us uh, ask good questions about where we're headed. Mm -hmm. What industry should we be focused on? You know, what should we be doing in our urban centers? Uh, How do we address climate change in an economically, in a way that sort of leverages our economic strength and so on. So that's, that's one little role for us. But I would say in general, we're not, because we're small jurisdictions with relatively little horsepower, there's not a lot of big thinkers out there put in their mind to what does Atlantic Canada look like 20 and 30 years out. And there, I say there are, if you look at some of the mm-hmm. you know, national think tanks or some other jurisdictions, but even a place like Alberta, I, they have no idea, right? They're really trying to grapple with what does a post oil economy look like. And right. I don't think anybody, anybody in that province has any real idea of what that looks like. Yeah. Yeah. And there definitely are analogies to us here as well. So we'll get to step three which is the world and the economy we want in the 21st century when we get to our next segment. But for now, that middle point, the, the how we get there point, the bridging the gap between, like you said, here we are today, and we're trying to solve problems right in front of our face, but where are we in the next 50 years? One thing that I've seen that I think is a, is a thumbs up and is something that I can point to that's a positive is there seems to be um, a growing solidarity around things like population growth. I mean, immigration is is on everybody's lips right now, and I haven't seen anybody uh, other than maybe a few rural centers or a few small isolated groups not admit if we're going to grow in any way, we must grow the population. So I, I would agree with that. I mean, you know, the the CRA polling would suggest that in outside of the urban centers, still about 50% of people feel that current inward migration is about where it needs to be. So I think there's still quite a bit of effort required to explain to communities large and small across Atlantic Canada that it's not the same, right? If, if you know, if you're a 60 year old mayor, this is not the same as when you were 40 or when you were 20. There are fundamental differences. So if you look at the number of births versus the number of deaths, which is the natural population growth rate, it's negative in the vast majority of communities across Atlantic Canada. This is this is unprecedented ter- territory. You get more people dying than being born every year. Right. So I think once you explain it to people, I think uh, I think they they get that. I think you're right about that. But I think we do have to. There, there needs to be far more education about that because one of the things that Maritimers in particular, and certainly Newfoundland and Labradorians, uh, they care a lot about their kind of you know unique culture and some of the attributes that they're, they're, they're said to be nice people and they're said to be this and that and so on and so there is some concern about what does that look like when you start flooding in tens of thousands of people from outside the province mm-hmm. but i think we have you know again that's part of the the education process right i mean canada has been attracting hundreds of thousands of people a year for decades and it's only enhanced and strengthened 
communities, uh, you know, across Ontario, across the West. And so we just have to understand that we're just a little behind the curve in this part of the country and we have to get, uh, have to get caught up, but attracting younger people into our communities, it's going to re replenish our K to 12 school system. You know, it's going to replenish the workforce. It's going to invigorate the entrepreneurial environment. So I, I don't see any downside to bringing in lots of newcomers to help us uh, build our, our 21st century economy here uh urban and rural across atlantic canada yeah and as people who have uh, at least one foot in the immigration world both of us it seems like you do have to at least extend an olive branch and be a little bit sympathetic to the folks whose communities are changing i know you know this but the listeners don't but half of my blood comes from that very place newfoundland and it's a place where your next door neighbor uh, looked like you you knew their name, you knew their family, you knew who their father was, which, which is the old trope of how you get to know somebody in Newfoundland. And you have to have some sympathy for the fact that communities are changing. And if you don't navigate an immigration system well, there are obvious uh, downfalls for folks coming in and we're going to lose all these people to MTV, Montreal, Toronto, and Vancouver. But it seems to me like we know we need to increase the population base. We know we need to get younger. I wrote a piece recently um, called Energy for Work, and I had spent some time working in developing economies, and I looked around and I thought to myself, everybody's so young, and specifically sub-Saharan Africa. I'll give you a stat here that's really interesting. My hypothesis, and I, and I may be wrong about this, we'll see how it plays out in the next couple decades, but once sub-Saharan Africa gets healthy and sustainable and 100% connected, they're likely in for an innovation explosion. And part of the reason why is because the average age in sub-Saharan Africa is 17. Unbelievable. The average age in Atlantic Canada is something like 45. So when we look around at the sheer total amount of energy, I literally mean your energy, that's available to be productive in the economy, we're having more people add to the negative balance of that sheet than people graduating from high school coming in as a plus to that balance sheet. But that can't last forever. What do you think about that? I think that's right. That literally, if you if you were to project out a scenario where nobody moved into Atlantic Canada on a net basis, so let's say a few moved in, but a few moved out, but if you had no net net growth uh, of through migration over the next even ten years, but let's say go out even twenty or thirty years. I don't see how the economy survives. I don't see how you fund healthcare. Um, you know, I've I've written about this many years ago, a decade ago. I wrote about this. I basically uh, uh, forecasted that by 2026, you know, there would be the federal government would come in and and uh, do a, some sort of royal commission and recommend the merging of at least the three provinces in the maritime provinces, but possibly Newfoundland as well. Uh, and dramatically downsized public expectations around public services and and so, sort of a real sort of apocalyptic view. And this was before we started flowing in a lot of immigrants uh, and getting better at that in the last few years. So I'm now far more optimistic. But I, I, at that time, a year ago or 10 years ago, I said, if you don't do something now, uh, you know, you could be in for a very uh, worst case scenario in Atlanta, Canada, because you can't fight demography. Right. If you have two people dying for every one person being born, what happens? Well, what happens, number one, is all of your export oriented businesses go first. Right. Because you need the nursing homes. You need the, the local service providers. They're not going anywhere. But at first you lose your exporters because they can go. They can move to where the labor is. You know, you don't have to uh, have a sawmill in New Brunswick. You can actually ship the logs. Uh, out to other jurisdictions for sawing. And we're actually seeing that with our salmon. A lot of the salmon now is being processed outside of New Brunswick, the salmon that's actually uh, uh, raised in New Brunswick waters. So this is, this, is the, this is the real risk. And then if you lose your export industries and your economy deflates and you can't afford to pay for those public services that you care about and you expect the federal government to come in with a big handout and save the day. So I, I was quite pessimistic 10 years ago but last year in New Brunswick, we attracted 6,000 immigrants. Uh, this is up from just about 23, 2400 just a few years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I think this is a very, very positive step forward. Nova Scotia's uh, uh, record number of immigrants last year. PEI 
has been leading the country for immigrant attraction uh, since around 2011, 2012 on average per year. And even Newfoundland and Labrador, the last great bastion, uh, understands now and has a population and an immigration strategy and is looking to attract more immigrants to the rock because they understand these 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 great demographic realities. Uh, and the other thing I would say on that is, you know, you hear a lot about, well, why don't we just bring our kids back? And what I say to people is, look, if your kid, your child is, is 30 years old or 40 years old and living in Toronto or doesn't matter, Calgary, wherever else they are in the world, uh, and there's a job for them here that fits their skills, aptitude and interests, then they should come back. We should encourage them to come back. Uh, but a lot of the jobs on offer in Atlanta, Canada right now are not necessarily the kind of lucrative, high paying professional jobs. <laughs> You know that these people want so you do have to you do have to solve your labor market demand issues up and down the labor market right whether it's whether it's basic skills or highly uh, skilled individuals and then you create a strong economy which creates uh those professional jobs that that, that many many kids want to um want to work in so I, i'm very optimistic now i think we've proven our ability to attract people now we need to create a culture of economic development at the community level. Uh, and, and, and I think if we can do those two things, flow in lots of people, have a culture of economic development at the community level across Atlantic Canada, I think our, uh, the prospects are, are great for this region uh, into the future. And I'm sure as we go through this pod podcast over the weeks, we'll be discussing more and more about what those opportunities could be. Okay, let's roll out one of our segments. We're going to be doing several different segments over the course of this weekly podcast, and and one of the fundamental ones being Q&A. We want to hear from you. We want to know what you're thinking uh, and what you're doing right now in Atlantic Canada, and we'll, we'll shout you out by name and, and ask David your questions. But the segment we're going to go with today is is my personal favorite segment, and I also have a controversial Newfoundland question to ask you at the end of the show. It's called Pivot or Double Down. We have a lot of things that we're working on in Atlantic Canada. And in the next 20 years, um, we're either going to have to pivot or double down. There's industries that are changing. And you mentioned one uh, that Alberta is dealing with right now in oil. So I'm going to tee you up for a discussion around whether we should pivot or double down. And I want to start with this one. Our natural resources should we pivot or should we just double down and say, look, we're a natural resources economy. This is what we are. Let's do it better than anybody in the world. Pivot or double down? Absolutely double down. Okay. You know, the war, one, fundamentally, people need natural resources. They need the, the food that's produced through the agricultural sector. They need the fish that's produced through the wild uh, catch and through aquaculture. They need the mineral uh, resources I mean, think about trees. There's a huge pushback now against single-use plastics and plastics in general. Uh, everybody loves wood now uh, in terms of wood bags for uh, you know paper bags and paper straws and paper uh, uh, utensils. Uh, so I think uh, uh, the ability to have um, a forest product sector that's sustainable by planting many, many thousands and hundreds of thousands of trees, millions of trees every year in this province and, and sustaining that into the future. So double down. It doesn't mean you don't work on new sectors. It doesn't mean you don't focus on your universities and driving uh, intellectual property-based industries. But uh, I would double down on our on our on all of our natural resources, our, our mining sector, our forest product sector, our agriculture sector, and our fishing sector. We're now among the world leaders for low bush blueberries and, and maple syrup. And that's directly as a result of, of forward thinking entrepreneurs and governments saying, let's grow those two clusters of activity. Uh, and I would, I would double down. We need to innovate. We need to bring technology into these sectors. We need to be world beating in terms of how we develop and the environmental protocols we put around our, our natural resources development. But I would double down if we, if we don't, uh, I think it would be a huge mistake. 
So I'm going to have to agree. And I, and I love, I love what you said about layering on technology to traditional industries. I don't think there's any way we can get around that. We must do that. I work in international business. I, I support uh, newcomers who come to the area who want to be entrepreneurs, uh, getting them planned and financed. And one of the trends that I've seen recently, um, and it surprised me, but in some ways it shouldn't have, is there are a lot of people interested in a natural resources-based business. And one of the things they tell me is when they look around, all we have is space. All we have is space. So let's start generating some economic activity from all this free space we have. Yeah, I mean, I was I was in Ontario doing some work a few months ago and I interviewed an a organic, um, he was like pheasant farmer or something like that. And he hmm. was a Wall Street guy. And, you know, a young, young fellow, but after about 10 years in Wall Street, he cashed out and, and set up a small farm, you know, a couple hours outside of Toronto because there's <laughs> meaning. He felt it was meaningful to work in the agriculture sector and to actually provide, you know, healthy protein and, and, and agricultural products for the market. He felt, you know, that was far more socially meaningful than moving money around on Bay Street. So. I think natural resources in general, you could make that argument. You know, you will not have the technologies that we have around the world that we all take for granted now, unless you have the rare earth metals that are required uh, for these technologies like cell phones and, 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 and 5G networks and so on to exist. Mm -hmm. So if we've got that those minerals here and we can extract them in an environmentally sustainable way, in, a, in, a, in, a, in an economically sustainable way, uh, we should certainly be doing that. So I'm a, I'm a double down guy, uh, certainly a double down guy on that, uh, on that issue. So here's my controversial Newfoundland question. I told clients of mine, when I go back home and I take the ferry, when I land in a little town called Port Basque and drive to a little town called Clarenville, it spoils about nine hours and you literally see nothing because you don't pass St. John's. You got to go down to the coast for St. John's. All you see is trees. All you see is undeveloped land. And the first question, especially my Southeast Asian clients ask me is why? <laughs> it's a great question because they're so clustered and we're so unbelievably spread out. And so we're going to talk about energy in, in a few shows from now and just how much sheer energy we use moving economic activity across this country. But when I look at Newfoundland, here's my question for you. And I, and I bet you haven't been asked this before, or maybe you have, I don't know. Could Newfoundland be Canada's dark horse? I mean, with the amount of sheer natural resources they have at their disposal, and we know we're on the bubble or they're on the bubble in terms of where the economy goes, it could go one way or the other, and one could be really bad and one could be really good. Is it possible Newfoundland is the dark horse? Make my dad happy and say yes. So, well, I think, I think it's possible. I think one of, the, one of the issues, though, is offshore oil. So they have a ton of offshore oil, the... the, the the expected reserves out there and the amount of money, the billions of dollars right now that's being put into exploring in the offshore is, is amazing. And that oil, once extracted, is, is relatively clean in terms of the amount of carbon emissions required to extract the oil. And it's, um, you know, it's, there's, these are huge reservoirs, right? So once you, once you develop them, they provide a sustainable amount of oil for many, many, many years. But they're running up against this eventual decline in the need for oil. So I've been saying all along that Canada needs to supply its share of global oil markets as long as those markets exist. But at the same time, as a global community, we need to be reducing our demand for oil and fossil fuel-based uh, products. Uh, and so as we come off the need, then you know everybody's going to take a haircut. And the question is whether or not the the cost associated with developing offshore oil, offshore uh, Newfoundland and Labrador oil, is competitive with other uh, sources. So we know it's probably not competitive with Saudi Arabia uh, mm -hmm. because they can they basically just stick a straw in the sand and pull out that oil for something like six dollars a barrel in terms of their operating costs. Mm -hmm. uh, but they need fifty dollars a barrel to pay for all the services that they that that the people have come to expect. Uh, in in Saudi Arabia, so the so I I'm, I guess the the short answer is I think so. 
you have to be careful about the trees. Uh, Newfoundland and Labrador trees take a lot longer to grow because it's an older, it's a, it's a colder uh, climate. Good point. Uh, so so in, in Brazil, you can grow um, a rubber tree to full maturity within seven years. And that tree can be cut down and put in and created for use for paper and pulp and all the other things that the same that we use here in New Brunswick or across Atlantic Canada. In New Brunswick, that tree would take 40 years. Now, it's not a rubber tree. It's a different tree, but it takes about 40 years to grow to full maturity. Uh, and in Newfoundland and Labrador, depending on where you are, it could be 70 years to full mm-hmm. maturity. Mm-hmm. So there is a challenge. So when you see all those trees, you know, you have to understand that it takes longer. Uh, it takes longer for those trees to go to maturity. But I, I love the potential of when you think about vast open spaces, when you think about the changing climate, uh, when you think about... Um, you know, when you look at a province like Newfoundland and Labrador as a, as a, as a uh, new frontier for development, you know, and we hear a lot of people pushing back against this idea of a fixed link. I don't know if you've been following that, but the federal government has actually commissioned a study or, or actually dusted off an old study that, that looked at, at putting a fixed link uh, through Labrador and connecting the highway system right down into Newfoundland, a, mm. a serious, you know, Trans-Canada highway type uh, highway system. Mm. Uh, you know, it's a pipe dream. It's 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 a multi-massive billion-dollar project. But on the other hand, it, that sort of points to this idea of well, you know what? Maybe in 50 years, Newfoundland and Labrador could have two million people or three million people, right? Uh, and so that's the kind of thinking I think we do need to think across this region. Is is it's not about growth for growth's sake. It's about growth to make sure we can continue to provide the high-quality services that people have come to expect in our region but also to take advantage of our, uh, our small urban centers and take advantage of our natural resources and try to grow our economy in a sustainable way coming into this new sort of 21st century century reality. So I think, yeah, I mean, I, 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 I would say I wouldn't bet money on Newfoundland and Labrador being the dark horse uh, because I'm not a very risky person, but I would say, you know, if you said to me, where is Newfoundland and Labrador gonna be in 50 years? I think you can be quite positive. You, you know, people focus on the debt, the provincial debt, and that is an issue. People worry that we won't be able to pull oil out of the ground. But ultimately, you have to think about, you know, this this large landmass with tons of resources, lots of mineral resources in Labrador. Um, you know, as you say, still lots of forest product stock, you know, lots of potential for aquaculture. So I think that that province has a, has a bright future ahead of itself. The issue is whether or not it will be lubricated with tens of billions of dollars in uh, oil royalties over the next 20 or 30 years, or whether it will have to bootstrap without oil and gas, which will create, I think, more challenges for the province. Well, there we go. Okay, David, that's it for this week. Um, I urge you to stay inside, stay healthy, um, be productive, but um, protect the herd. Let's let's protect our community. Absolutely. And I urge listeners to to uh, write in with questions and things they'd like to see answered, because you and I, we can we can banter and debate about just about anything. Uh, and we would like to be as targeted to the, the needs of our uh, of our listeners as possible. Yep. We'll put that in the show notes so people will know where to go to get their questions answered. Uh, stay healthy, my friend. We'll see you next week. You too. Thanks. The Growing Pains podcast is produced by the great Zachary Pelche and is a part of the Unsettled Media Podcast Network. See you next week.